excited to be starting a, a new series, and not just because it's, you know, it's, it's new, but especially this time because uh, this is something that's been in my heart for many, many years, and, uh, and over about three years ago, I started writing a book about this, and, uh, and I decided what I was going to do is by faith, I would uh, declare and start preaching this series uh, this January, and with the goal of finishing at Easter, and uh, that by the end of it, I would also have the book finished. So there's nothing like lighting a little fire under your proverbial backside to make you get at it. So, uh, you know, now I have no excuse. I've got to put everything aside, and I've got to finish what I have started. And uh, so that's what I will be doing, and I'm excited because uh, this deadline is really going to, you know, help me focus and, and get it done. I, I'm a guy, I like a deadline. Everybody like a deadline? I like to know something's got to be done by a certain time, and that just causes me to get really focused in and get it going and get it done. So uh, it's going to be good for you. Now, let me ask you a question. I already talked to one person about this this morning, uh, but, and I won't mention Tasha's name about it. But anyway, we were, we're talking about New Year's resolutions. How many made a New Year's resolution? Let me see your hand. Come on, be honest. Let me see those hands. Put them up nice and high. All right, how many have already broken it? <laughs> All right, Abby. She's like, yes. Uh, I've already know. It only took me 24 hours, Pastor. But uh, you know, <laughs> uh, my wife said, "What? What's your New Year's resolution this year? You know, or have you made any?" And I said, "Yeah, just one." She said, "What is it?" I said, "To finish the book." She goes, "Aren't there any others?" I said, "That's a big enough one. If I meet that one, that's big enough. I mean, talk about some pressure here. Is that it? Yes, that's it, and it's a big it. So, praise the Lord. Um, well, you know what?" Aren't you glad that uh, even if you already capitulated on your New Year's resolution, that there's grace for that? Aren't you, aren't you happy about that? I know I am. I'm really happy about that because there's many times I've said, oh, yeah, I'm going to get this done this week. And guess what? I didn't get it done this week. Or there's many times that I've said to myself, I'm going to lose those 15 pounds. And as you can see with your own eyes, I have not lost those 15 pounds. And so, you know, we, we, we determine things in our heart and then we're not able to see them completed or something gets in the way or life just happens. And the next thing you know, you're living in this valley of lament. And, uh, you know, lament can be a powerful weapon if we learn how to grow from it, how to be inspired by it to change things. Uh, and, uh, and it comes from a deep sorrow of having, for example, sinned against God or against someone else. But lament can also be a very negative thing. The enemy can keep us wallowing in for weeks and months, even years, lamenting that this relationship went sour or that, that you didn't get this accomplished with your life. And we live so much of our life out of the lament and regret. God wants to set you free from that. Someone say amen. Sherry said we, we're not defined by our past. How many are, are thankful for that? I'm not defined by my past. I'm not even defined by my present. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Inside this body is a skinny man. I want you to know that. <laughs> I am not defined by my present either. But the reality is... I am defined by one person and one person alone, and that's Jesus Christ. Amen? 
You know, the trap the enemy wants to keep us in is continually looking at ourselves through either the lens of the past or the lens of the present rather than the lens of Jesus Christ. And we need to instead look through the eyes of Jesus. And so over the next number of months as we talk about grace, as we talk about uh, what God has laid in my heart, I'm going to encourage you to... Uh, Put on a new set of eyes and begin to look at yourself and to challenge you to look at yourself the way God looks at you. I want to spend the next few months kind of unpacking everything the Bible, not everything, I guess I couldn't say everything, but what the Bible has to say about God's amazing grace. I want to help us understand how grace works in our life, uh, all the different things that grace can be defined as uh, scripturally. And, uh, and, and give practical examples of how it has worked in my own life, in my own home, and in our marriage. Uh, we have had to have grace. That's correct, grace in our marriage. We've needed it. Uh, I know you guys think our marriage is perfect. I'm here to confess today that it's not. Uh, and the reason that it's not is not my wife's fault, is my fault. All right, just to be clear on that. <laughs> Sherry's perfect. I'm not. So, uh, but anyway, uh, she's about as close as you can probably get. But anyway, the reality is, is that none of us has a perfect home, perfect marriage, perfect past. But God's grace is bigger than everything that we have past experienced or anything we will in the future encounter. Amen? The kingdom of God is filled with and advanced by sons and daughters of God. Amen? It's advanced by sons and daughters of God. And uh, there's no one in the kingdom, not one single person in the kingdom of God, that has been uh, given admission because of their pedigree, who they were born to be. You know, well, I'm getting in because I'm a Henshaw. And the Henshaws come from a long English line of Henshaws who have you know, literally been involved in every aspect of English culture, and now we are spreading our name and our heritage throughout all of America and now invading Canada as well. And as a result of that, I am a citizen of the kingdom of God. No. Sorry, Mark. You know, Henshaw no more qualifies you than being an Irish Dowling does. It just, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, cause us to get in. And there's no one in the kingdom... Uh, of God that's been given admission because of their hard work. Uh, you know, I don't mean just your hard work at your job, but I mean your kingdom work. You know the stuff I'm talking about, the, the, how much you've labored, uh, you know, and we have so many people that throw so much work into the kingdom of God in this house. You know, uh, last week, you remember what this looked like up here and uh, all the beautiful stuff that was up here for uh, Christmas? You know, that didn't happen just because... You know, somebody came and did a little thing with their nose and boop, all it was. It was the result of a lot of hard work. There were people who invested their time and their energy and to make the, the, the foyer, the sanctuary, to, to look and reflect the beauty of the season. And it happened as a result of good work. But even all that good work, all the hours of counseling, all the hours of prayer, all the hours of Bible study you do, does not qualify you for the kingdom of God. We're also not citizens of the kingdom of God because of how much we give. You know, 
It's not because you unfurled your wallet and you sewed and you sewed and you sewed or you, you gave all this uh, time or you gave of your possessions. You know, uh, the Bible says you could give everything. You could even, even if you give your body to be burned, but if you don't have love, you're what? You're nothing. You're nothing. So it's not based upon your pedigree. It's not based upon your hard work. It's not based upon your giving. It just isn't. Our citizenship in the kingdom of God is based upon the grace we've experienced because of Jesus. Amen? Uh, just realized I'm not up there on the screen. <clears throat> Sorry about that, gentlemen. I was so engaged. I never even turned around and looked. <laughs> Thank you. Ah. Uh, So we've been given admission to the kingdom of God because of Jesus' pedigree. Amen? It's not my pedigree. It's his pedigree. It's because of who Jesus is and who he has been from the beginning. He is the eternal son of God. We're qualified for the kingdom because of who Jesus is, not because of who I am. Amen? My name doesn't really uh, carry much weight when it comes to eternal consequence, but his name is the name above all names. Amen? And his name qualifies me for the kingdom of God. Hallelujah. And also, you know, I don't get in because of my hard work, but I do get in because of Jesus' hard work. Amen? His sacrifice and, and his suffering on the cross, Jesus' work on my behalf is what gives me uh, the ability to be part of the kingdom of God. And again, it's not my giving, but it's Jesus' giving. Jesus gave, the Bible says. For God so loved the world that he gave. Jesus gave his life on the cross. The Father gave his Son. The whole testament of Scripture is about giving, but it's the giving of God that qualifies me, not my giving. It's the giving of God that qualifies me. It's his pedigree, his work, his giving that makes it possible for every one of us to be citizens of the kingdom of God. Isn't that beautiful? Not by works of righteousness, which any of us have done, but only by his grace do any of us get in. Amen? Now, when I uh, shared with people that I was writing the book and that the name for the book was going to be good for nothing, they all said, well, that's a really neat name for a book, but what does it have to do with the gospel? What does it have to do with, uh, you know, the grace, the grace of God? And, um, you know, reality is, is that when we hear that phrase, good for nothing, it's a common insult, right? I mean, uh, I've used it many times myself, you know, looking at some inanimate object or some, you know, crazy dog who's doing this or doing that, and you say, yeah, you're good for nothing, whatever, right? And we use that thing in a disparaging way. We put something down. Many of you have maybe even heard that used on your own life as people have spoken that as a curse over you. And, uh, and for that reason was one of the reasons why I thought that would make a great title for the book because the reality is many of us have experienced that. But I got to be honest with you, the, uh, the idea for the book came from a, a joke that I heard many, many years ago. And, uh, you know, the story was 
of these three little boys, and they were sitting together and uh, talking about their, you know how many, you know, my dad's bigger than your dad, those kind of conversations you have when you're a little boy. Does anybody remember those? Oh, man, you guys just didn't live, I guess. What? Anyway, <clears throat> so these three little boys are talking, and the first little boy, he says, my dad's a dentist, and he makes my teeth better for nothing. That's, you know, he's laid a trump card down there. You know, I get my, my free dentist work. The second little boy said, my daddy's a doctor, and he makes me feel better for nothing. And then the third little boy said, well, yeah, my daddy's a pastor, and he makes me good for nothing. <laughs> and uh, when I heard that joke a number of years ago, I said, you know, that is a really good joke. And uh, that is the reality of what I'm talking about. This, the reality is, is that God does make me good for nothing. God made me good, and the cost to me was nothing. He made me good, and it cost me absolutely nothing. Now, you might be saying, well, that's, that sounds like one of those sloppy, you know, grace messages, you know, uh, where there's, there's nothing involved in it or whatever. The reality is there's lots involved in it. But what made you good costs you nothing. What did the work, what accomplished the change, the transformation, was not something you did, it's what he did. Now, when... When we become a believer, when we say to him, yes, I accept your incredible grace and I want to partner with you, will there be a cost attached to that? Of course there will be. Anything worthwhile being involved in has got a cost attached to it. But that's not what made you good. What made you good cost you absolutely nothing. It was done by Jesus and by Jesus alone. Amen? <clears throat> so when we hear that phrase, as I said, you know, it's more than likely we've heard it used as a put-down, used as a, a word of condemnation and not the way the little boy made it in the story. And uh, we've been told that we're good for nothing. We've been told that we're never going to mount to anything, that, you know, you're, you're, why don't you be, couldn't you be more like your brother or more like your sister or more like this or more like that, all those different things that get thrown at us. And so it's not surprising that that term, good for nothing, uh, doesn't often resemble the way the boy used it in the story. And... Uh, it's often used to tear us down, to rip away at our self-image. And so uh, that's why, as we begin this whole thing, I need to talk about uh, who you are. I need to talk about uh, your self-image. Who am I? Who am I? And we've talked a lot about this as a church, but it seems like it's one of those things you just got to keep coming back to because we need to be reminded that when we get up in the morning, we look in the mirror, that face staring us back is not the whole story. Right? You know, if you judge yourself purely by what you see in the, in the mirror, it changes a lot, by the way. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Paula pulls out a picture the other night, and she shows it to me, and uh, she said, uh, you know, doesn't that look just like me? And it was a picture. Uh, I should say, it doesn't look just like Holly, and it was a picture of her and her dad, Mike. And I, you know, and I saw, you know, her point was to show me how much she and Holly look alike, but I looked at the picture and I was just looking at Mike and going, oh my word, he looked like he was 12. He wasn't old enough to have a kid, you know, and I was just, and I just couldn't get over it. I said, you know, he looked like he probably still had to use, uh, you know, acne medication and all that kind of stuff, you know, the things that when you get to be my age, you don't have to worry about it anymore. Praise the Lord. Uh, but, but, you know, he just looks so young. And then I realized, wait a minute, I looked that young when uh, I had my first child as well. 
And I remember looking back at those pictures. And so, you know, when we look in the mirror, what's staring back at us is constantly changing and is constantly affected by the gravity of age and all of those other wonderful things. But the, what we see staring back at us in the mirror is not the whole story. It's not the whole picture. And if our self-image is based upon what we see when we look in the mirror, I have some wonderful news for you this morning. Your future is not looking particularly good. just not. You know, ladies, gentlemen, gravity is at work on your body. It's pulling it to the earth in ever-increasing quantities. And the reality is, is that you are fighting a battle against uh, a body that is uh, right now in desperate need of being changed for the incorruptible. Amen? We all age. Now, we can age gracefully. I think I'm aging rather gracefully. Uh, you know, I've got more of my hair than Tom, but not much more. Uh, you know, the reality is, uh, however, it's grayer in the sides. Tom, yours is kind of getting there too. And, uh, you know, all of these things happen. And then one day the Bible says, I'm going to exchange this mortal tent for an immortal tent, an immortal shell, one that lasts forever. But if my self-worth is based on what I see when I look in the mirror and, and that image that comes back to me, I'm going to be in serious trouble. I'm, you know, wiring out at Ryan's yesterday, putting, he's got it all painted now and stuff, and so you're putting the plugs and switches on, and I spent most of the day on my knees putting on plugs that are like a foot off the ground, right? I'm telling you, by the end of the day, I could hardly even walk. I got up and I went, oh, like this. And, uh, you know, and I thought, where did all these aches and pains come from? And it's called aging. And, uh, you know, there's so many people that are caught up in body image and all that kind of stuff. And they look in the mirror and everything is about how we look, you know. And, and you know, and if you get married and the thing that is the glue in your marital relationship is how your spouse looks. Just saying, when Sherry signed for that last time on that marriage license, Sherry Lynn Rooney, and she looked over at me, she didn't see this. <laughs> she saw something that looked very different from this, let me tell you. And, and if the marriage contract was based on me maintaining this, we'd be in serious trouble. Serious trouble. The reality is this doesn't look quite the same as it used to look. <laughs> You know, for 55 years on the odometer, not too bad, but it doesn't look like it used to look. The reality is, is that, is that body image is one of the things marketed most steadily to us as a world, and it's one of the things that has the least impact of all upon who we really are. And yet we get suckered in by it all the time, all the time, and the enemy uses that lie to just tear us down and tear us down and tear us down. Well... Um, one of the other things that we get our value from is what other people think about us. And uh, there's a theory out there. It's called the looking glass uh, self-theory. And this was uh, first put forth by a guy named Charles Horton Cooley back in, I think, the 1950s. And uh, the concept says basically this, that a person's self-image grows out of a person's social interaction with other words. So in other words... Uh, how we see ourselves does not come from who we really are, 
who God made us to be, gifts, talents, personality, character, etc., but rather from how we believe other people see us. So the theory says is that your self-image, your self-worth comes from how you believe what you've come to believe about what other people see you as. The point of the whole theory is this, that our self-concept comes from what we believe other people think of us. It's as simple as that. That's where our self-concept is most deeply rooted in. And, you know, the truth of the matter is that uh, in the beginning, this concept is rooted in what our parents say and do with us. So when you're a child, the most direct influencer over your image and over who you are is your parents and the things that they speak over you and the things that they declare over you and the things that they say. And, uh, you know, therefore, if the parents, you know, are, are those that say, you know what, uh, you're beautiful, you're smart, you know, you're such a good boy, then you're going to grow up and you're going to believe in yourself and you're going to believe those things at least until you get to school and the kids in the schoolyard tend to tell you otherwise, right? And that may have some impact upon your self-image. But as, on the other hand, it's also true that if you grew up in a home where mom and dad said, you know, you're so stupid, what's wrong with you, why couldn't you be like, more like your brother, or why couldn't you be more like your sister, uh, then you'll grow up with a very poor self-image, which when you get to that playground will only be reinforced by the people that are there. The truth of the matter is that we begin our lives with a self-concept built on the words and interaction of our parents, but as we grow older as a child, you know, that perception is changed by other people around about us. And uh, later in life, later in life, after all the peer pressure of being a teenager and, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff and being so concerned about what our, our peers think about us and getting so much of our value from what they think about us, as we get older, we get married and we have children, uh, the source of our self-image comes back closer to home again. We take more of our, our understanding of who we are from our spouse and from our children and from our very close friends and not so much from what the opinion of those out there is. That's the normal progression. If you're 40 and you're still taking pictures of yourself in the mirror like this and posting them on the internet, then you probably never grew up. Because your self-image is still based upon all the people. Oh, you look so good. Never believe you're 38, girl. Never. Oh, my word. You know? At this point in life, your self-image should be coming from something much more closer to home than that. Someone say amen. amen. Someone say ouch. You know, the reality is, is that that is the way it should be, but it's not always the way that it is. Now... Our perception of what other people think about us is the foundation of human self-image. And at the heart of the message of grace is this story of identity. At the heart of the message of God's grace is an encounter with God which enables us to see ourselves as God sees us. Do you understand that? And when we have an encounter with God, God does such a transformative work in us that we begin to see ourselves the way God sees us. And when we begin to view ourselves through the lens of Holy Spirit, through the lens of God and his eternal view of us and who we are, then the looking glass cell theory is still true, but what it tells us is that if we get close to God, the idea of who we are will be healthier because we'll see ourselves the way God sees us. Amen? 
The closer my relationship, therefore, is with God, the more my view of how he sees me will shape, I should say, my self-image. And so if you want to become a healthy person with a healthy uh, self-image and a vibrant life, then get close to God and, and go to him and see yourself the way he sees you. And that's what will produce a positive, positive image of who you are. You know, today there's such a push on, you know, uh, because image is, is so much uh, thrust upon us that the, the kickback, and it's the kickback in the wrong direction, is to now, uh, there's a whole comic book series coming out of overweight comic heroes. Yeah, yeah, you know, because the body image of superheroes is they're all perfect, right? Sculpted, Herculean, you know, Aphrodite-type bodies that go around and do superhuman feats, right? So now you have superhuman chubby people. I'm, I'm not making this up. And, uh, and so they're creating these, these comic book things with, with chubby superheroes whose spandex is just a little bulging in different places and areas. And, and the problem with that is that, that we are still promoting that body image is what our value is rooted in. Do you see what I mean? We're trying to change the perception that, that in order to have a healthy body image, you have to be sculpted and, 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 and godlike. But, but that's not the problem. The problem is, is that we're getting our, our identity from our body image, period. Instead, wouldn't it be wonderful if they made a comic book series where the characters were, were championed, whether they were chubby or slim or fit or, or whatever, didn't matter, but their, their quality of person was based on their character, that there was one who was uh, gentleness, kindness, uh, who one, one who was a, uh, a person of, of bold faith or of hope, uh, somebody who was a giver, somebody who was an investor, somebody, you know what I mean? That somebody who poured their life out and they were known and their character is what determined their superhuman quality. See, that's what we need to understand. That the, that the body image thing is, is the wrong way to be going. And where may it be applaudable to say, well, we want to challenge the, the current trend of body image. Okay, fine, but the reality is help your kids grow up to not get their identity from their body image at all. Help them get it from the fact that they're fearfully and wonderfully made, that God loves them, and that God has positioned them to do great things here in the earth. Are you hearing me this morning? And that brings me to really the last thing I really want to get at here this morning is that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. You know, in its desire to establish our sinful nature, you know, the preach always taught, church always talking about sin, I think the church has been guilty of making man seem like the offspring of Satan and not of God. So many times we go around and, and if we're honest, because of being told, oh, you're, you know, you're a sinner, you know, you're, a, uh, you know, you're so filthy, you're this, you're that, we, we probably feel a greater affinity to the devil than we do to God. And yet, I, I'm not belittling sin, don't get me wrong. And I'm not saying that sin isn't a problem, it is a problem. But my identity, how God sees me, when God looks at me, he doesn't, he doesn't see all that sin. He sees me as a new creation. He sees me through the, 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 the washed, as the washed uh, participant in the, in the blood of Jesus Christ. He sees me as beautiful and wonderful and, 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 and intelligent and wise. And, 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 and he sees all kinds of good things that he did. Amen? 
And, and I realize when we're sharing our faith with somebody that, you know, that we have to help them understand that Jesus came to pay the price for the sins of the world. But can I ask you a question? Did Jesus just die to pay the price for sin, or did he have an objective in paying the price for sin? He had an objective. His objective wasn't just to say, oh, good, sin's canceled. Poof, it's all over, sin's canceled. If that was the case, then, then just end the whole human story right there. Price for sin's been taken care of, let's just end the whole thing. No, his purpose was to redeem a people to himself so that he could restore his kingdom. And he needed to deal with sin to turn us into the, the divine creatures, the, 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 the sons, the daughters of God that we were created to be. And so he took the sin upon himself so that the very nature, the absolute identity of who I am is transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. And I am now walking as a citizen of the kingdom. And I am able, through what Jesus has done in me, to do great things. If it was just about dealing with the sin so I could go to heaven, then every person who's a struggle with sin and comes up to the altar... And gives it to God. God should take you right there. Boom. Soon as you kneel down and you say, Jesus, here's my sin, then instantly should wipe you out, take you to glory, so that you never fall into it again, and he's got his redeemed product right there. If that's all it was about, then he's got it right there, and he's finished. But that's not what it was all about. And over the next number of weeks, we're going to hear about just so much more that God's redeeming grace is about. He's not just concerned about dealing with your sins so we can get you to heaven. He's concerned about sin because it gets in the way of you working for heaven. It's not about getting you to heaven. It's about being able to get you working from heaven. From heaven, not for heaven. Someone say amen. amen. And we have to understand what God did on the cross to accomplish for you and I. Now, I want to reinforce that self-image by reminding everybody here this morning that uh, the most powerful truth in the scripture is the one that gets played down so often in Christendom. You and I were fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. We were fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. Remember, we are the offspring of, generationally, of Adam and Eve. We're not the offspring of Lucifer. He had nothing to do with it. In fact, Satan has created nothing. Someone say amen. amen. Doesn't have a creative bone in his body. He's just a liar, a deceiver. Psalm 139. David had quite a revelation of this. He said, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. And the scripture goes on to talk about the glory and the majesty of what it is to be a fearfully, wonderfully created being in the image of God. This is David talking Old Testament. We were made in the image of God even before we experienced Jesus Christ's redemptive power. Old Testament revelation. 
Is it sinking into everybody? David understood that, that as human beings, we're marvelously created by God. It's amazing. It's just, just amazing. Amazing. And it's so amazing that God said, I'm going to send my son to redeem those people so that they can walk in the fullness of what they were created to be. Are you hearing me this morning? That is what God wants to do. Every human is a unique and beautiful expression of the divine. As Lewis would say, there is so much of him that millions and millions of little Christs will still be too few to express God fully. So there's lots of room for all your uniqueness around the cross because no matter how different we all are, we cannot fully express the majesty that is God. Amen? There's lots of room, lots of room. And if we understand how beautiful we are and how we're made in the image of God, then we get an understanding of why Satan hates us. He hates us because we're unique expressions of the one that he truly hates. He hates God for booting him out. He hates God and all the, that God gives and all that God pours out and all that God loves and does freely given. Satan hates it because he wanted it all to be his. Are right, you hearing me this morning? And every time he looks at you, he's reminded of his own failure and he's reminded of God's majesty and God's glory and it absolutely drives him crazy. And he sees, every time he looks at you, he sees the image of the Almighty reflected back at him. You were not created by Satan. You were corrupted by sin that Satan orchestrated in the garden, but you were made by God. And I realize that without Christ... Humanity can and has done some incredibly dark things. But the truth remains that we are the creation of God. Tainted and corrupted, but made by God nonetheless, and wonderfully made to boot. Wonderfully made to boot. And if you don't understand that, you just need to do some, take some biology courses and just see the incredible engineering that went into who you are. Wow. I know Sherry's brother went to university, he was going to become an oral surgeon or something, right? So he took biochemistry when he went to university. And uh, a lot of people in the church were concerned that this vibrant Christian man was going to go to university and it was going to suck all the faith out of him. And instead, everything he learned as he studied biochemistry in university just came, made him walk out every day going, wow, God, you're awesome. And he ended up not going and becoming a, a dentist or an oral surgeon. He ended up going in the ministry. And uh, he ended up pastoring and, and is still doing that today because he was captivated by how amazing and how awesome our God is. You know, one of the greatest incredible testaments against the whole evolutionary thing is just how fearfully and wonderfully made you are. You're a masterpiece. You are a masterpiece of engineering that we can't even come close to with all of our technology today. We have a hard enough time making a robot that can even walk without falling flat in its face. Hello? It's true. Well, you know, but we can make them smarter than humans. Well, all they're doing is just speeding up the computational ability of a computer. The ability to love. The ability to show compassion. The ability to, 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 to weep. The ability to, to, you know, do all of the things that make us in the image of God. Machines can't replicate at all. All right, hear me this morning. Praise the Lord. 
Let me conclude with this quote this morning. Last year, found this quote, God had a dream and he wrapped your body around it by Bill Johnson. I think he's on to something. God had a dream and it was you. And he wrapped that, that tent around you. This is not me. This is the container for me. Me, I'm more than the sum of this. This is just a container for me. Me is on the inside. Me needs to come from the inside and get expressed on the outside. But this thing here, this is just a tent. And we get so focused on the tent. We get so focused on the container. We spend so much of our time working and, 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 and you know, taking care of the container. And we do need to take care of it because it's got to carry us for quite a while. But at the end of the day... You know, you can invest all this time and energy into the body beautiful, but if you don't take care of the person on the inside, it's wasted energy. It's wasted investment. God had a dream, and that dream was you, and he wrapped your body around that dream. And that dream started, uh, David said, when you were in your mother's womb, when you were knit together. You were, even before that, you were in the imagination and the heart of God. And he said it was marvelous and it was good. He sees our sin, but God also sees past our sin. God doesn't just simply see our pain and our problems. He also sees our potential. God doesn't just see your pain. He doesn't just see your problems. He also sees your incredible potential. And God is working from the inside out to release that potential into this world. That's what God wants to do through everyone. And we have to truly understand the transformative work of God's grace in order to fully appreciate who we are and to be able to live out of how God created me to be. All right, hear me this morning. And that's what we're going to do over the next number of weeks. And there's some stuff God's going to have to deal with in your life. There are some images, some ideas, some concepts that you've held on to that are very deeply rooted in your life. And God wants to set you free from them. There are some effects of this that are going to be very far-reaching in your life. They've been far-reaching in mine, and they've caused me to have to reevaluate myself many, many times over and over again in the eyes of God rather than in the eyes of my uh, own self-determination. But God is gracious, and God is good. Amen? And he will be faithful. And if we can get a, a hold of the fact that it's God who made me good, and that he literally did do it for nothing. How could we not be grateful for that? Amen? How can you not be grateful for that? And how does it not change everything about how you live, you share your faith, you live out your life? I mean, it rewrites it all. Amen? And that's what God's going to do. So let's stand together this morning. Uh, Pastor Mark's going to go out to the back foyer. And he's made up some really nice uh, sign-up sheets and stuff for life groups coming up uh, in this winter uh, semester. And we encourage you to be part of it, you know. If, if all the faith experience and relationship you're getting is just on Sunday morning, you're not getting enough. Amen? Because life is lived out in relationship. And we're going to be talking a lot about that in the next few weeks. And you're going to say, but that's what makes it so hard. I agree. That is what makes it so hard, but it's also what makes it so worthwhile.
Ask anybody who spent uh, any length of time in a prison cell or on a, a stranded on an island how much they enjoyed the experience, and you're going to find it was not good because we're meant to be lived out in relationship. And some of you are, have relationship difficulties. You have relational struggles. You have things you got to deal with. Okay, well, God's gracious, and he loves you, and he's going to help you deal with them. Amen? And part of that process, get signed up for a life group and start to, put, start to put everything we talk about in the next few weeks into practice. Right, Jim? That's right. Put it into practice. Every single week you get to put it into practice. Uh, you know, sign up for a group where you don't even like anybody. That'll really, that'll really work you over. Find one that stretches you the most. That might be the best thing for you. You, you might find that it totally changes you. Uh, you know, <laughs> Advice you never thought you'd hear from the pulpit. Right there. Father, we thank you so much for your amazing grace. And Father, I thank you so much that you have made me good. And Father, it costs me nothing. Lord, there is absolutely nothing that I have done or could ever do to become made and transformed in your eyes. Lord, it was all done by the work of Jesus Christ. And Father, we thank you for that revelation and that truth, but Lord, there's still areas of our heart that you need to rework and you need to uh, bring in alignment with that revelation that's going to happen over the next number of weeks. Father, we look forward to the journey. We look forward to what you're going to do. We give you praise. We give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Have an amazing, amazing week in him, and we'll see you next Sunday. Sign up for one of those groups.